Well, good morning, Christ community. How are y'all doing? Good. <laughs> Three people are good. That's wonderful. It's the new year. Uh, happy 2016. Uh, I, I confessed first service. New Year's Eve is like my least favorite holiday. It's one second long. You're basically happy tomorrow. I just, I've never understood it. So mainly because we have kids and we don't celebrate it. But um, it's, hopefully you did have a good, safe New Year's Eve. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know me really quick, my name is Reed Kappel. And I serve at our, our Leewood campus, and I have the joy of being here with you guys this morning uh, to open God's Word. Um, r- really quick, if, if you're a kiddo, if you didn't get a little Kid Connect on your way in, I hope you guys grabbed one. There's a little word search on the back and a little outline you can kind of follow along. And if you fill out the correct answers, you can come and get a piece of candy afterwards from me. And so that's for children alone. Okay. I can make some exceptions. But uh, in, in all seriousness, it's good to be with you all. Uh, if you were with us during Advent, um, we were in a series entitled For All People. And the latter half of that series, we were, we were entering into the Gospel of Matthew. And we looked at the first three chapters to kind of bring that series to a close. And, and it kind of also served as a way to, to lead into our series that we're starting here in 2016 on the entire Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to be camped out in this Gospel for quite a while. Uh, And what you're going to see uh, throughout our time in Matthew is we're kind of breaking the book up into these mini-series. And this first mini-series is entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. And and what we're going to be seeing in this small mini-series to start is the way in which our conventional ways of thinking about life, about value, meaning, purpose, even Jesus himself, how we define him and understand him, tends to be backwards in comparison to the way in which it's laid out in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to be seeing this upside-down nature in these first few chapters of Matthew Uh, And we're going to be seeing how the way in which we view the world is very backwards. It's upside down, in fact. And and what we're going to be seeing this morning in particular is as we look into Matthew 4, is we're going to see this unexpected start to Jesus' ministry. Uh, We ended last year with with Matthew 3 looking at Jesus' baptism. And the declaration that God the Father says to Jesus the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see this transition into chapter 4, where Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I realize that by just saying the word devil, there's some of us that we've, I've probably lost some of you, and, and, and even there's some thinking kind of in our minds of like, okay, devil... I know we're in church, I know we're talking about the Bible, we can talk about God, the Holy Spirit, you know, but this idea of the devil, it just kind of, it just leaves us kind of in an uncomfortable state, whether we're afraid of the devil or whether we're just skeptical about his very existence. And, and I get that, I get that. There is this kind of hocus-pocus-y kind of feeling about the devil. You know, do we really need to believe in that in order to be a Christian? You know, why not believe in other kind of fairy tale things like tooth fairies and unicorns and chipotle lines where no one is on their cell phone? You know, other, other impossible things that exist in our world. And, and, and I get that. I totally do. In fact, there was a recent uh, poll that came out through the Barna Group, and they found that 40% of American Christians don't believe that the devil is a real being. And, and I, I get that. I'm sympathetic to that way of thinking. But, but if we are going to kind of be skeptical about the devil, about demonic presence, and if we're going to kind of mock the idea of it, we should still understand that we have to ask the question, what is evil? How then do we explain, okay, fine, there's no devil, there isn't a demonic presence in the world, but how do we explain evil at its core? 
And, and some people are led to believe that, well, evil isn't really a real thing. It's just um, a societal construct. It is really just something we use to describe psychological or sociological dissonance in our world. And, and, and I get that. I understand that that may be a way of thinking, but is that really how we explain away things? That if, if we find a serial killer in our society, our culture, are we really just to say he is who he is because of his upbringing, because he had bad parenting or he had some traumatic experience? Is that how we explain away evil in our world? Some contemporary thinkers have even gone to the point to say that, that evil isn't really a thing at all. It's simply this socially conditioned construct uh, that is basically created by the culture and saying, well, we have just deemed these things evil and these things not evil. And, and, and again, if that's, if that's how we're going to explain it, that's, that's fine. But, but are we really okay with, with looking at things in the world like the atrocities carried out by ISIS and saying that the, this is just a group of people who are culturally confused or they just had bad parents? Like, is that how we're explaining evil? Is that our explanation for the things in the world that we look at and we say this ought not to be the case, that someone must pay for this? How do we explain evil? In either case, evil is not real. If, if it is just a social construct or if it is just a problem of psychological dissonance, evil is not real. It's just an adjective used to describe things. It is not a noun that defines something that we observe. In, in the book, uh, which has turned into a movie, The Silence of the Lambs, we're introduced to one of the greatest villains in literature, Hannibal Lecter. And there's this scene where Officer Clarice Starling, if you've seen it, you know that, that voice, but she's interviewing Hannibal Lecter. And she's trying to figure out why he is the way he is. What happened to him, she asks. And Hannibal Lecter responds to her by saying this, Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I am evil? Now, Hannibal Lecter knows that Officer Starling is the product of modern secular thinking. And he knows that he has just asked her a question that her worldview has no answer for. Because if all we are are material beings, then everything can be explained by material causes. Therefore, the idea of evil being a noun is not something in the category of a materialist. It is just an adjective. Things may be evil or have the appearance of it, but evil itself is not a thing. In many ways, this problem of evil, although it is a problem for, for Christians and people who believe in God, we have to explain how a loving God could allow evil, it's also a problem for the atheist. How do you explain that evil isn't really a thing? It is just psychological, mental, societal discord and not rooted in anything ultimately objectionable. Because if ultimate reality is not moral, then we can't condemn it for being immoral. We would just find ourselves shaking our fists at an empty sky, yelling at something that doesn't exist. Evil, if all that is in the world is material, is just a construct of our minds. I say all this as we turn to Matthew 4 because we see Jesus encountering what I believe is the manifestation of evil in Satan himself. And I realize that there can be some skepticism about that, but I encourage us as we read Matthew 4 to honestly reflect in your own heart and mind, what do you believe about evil? How do you explain it? 
from a philosophical standpoint for sure, but also just from a personal standpoint. What is evil? And so I would like for us to look at Matthew chapter 4, seeing Jesus' interaction with the manifestation of evil itself in the person of the devil. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer to worship you, to recognize that you are the giver of all good gifts. And one of those gifts, Lord, is your word that you have given us that we might know you, see you, and understand you. So Lord, teach us your truth this morning. And may we see the Lord Jesus in new and fresh ways through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 4. Uh, just to kind of set the context and the story here, um, Matthew chapter 3 ends with the baptism, as I mentioned. And, and we see that as chapter 4 begins, Matthew uses the word then. And he uses that word to, to make the point that there should be a very clear connection between Jesus' baptism and the temptation narrative in the wilderness. It's not just that it happens immediately following, although that could have been the case. Matthew is just making the point that these two narratives should be read together without skipping a beat. They go hand in hand. That as Jesus is declared the Son of God, whom the Father is well pleased with, that same Son is then sent into the wilderness to demonstrate and confirm his role as the Son of God. Now what's interesting about this is that the same Spirit that descended like a dove at Jesus' baptism is the same spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. If you notice that in chapter, in verse 1. And then the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Which is very interesting because I, I think this in some ways is a pattern for the Christian life. To, to be a Christian is to be a person who follows Jesus. And what we see is that in Jesus' life, he, we have the baptism of Jesus, this beautiful moment, and it is followed immediately with the temptation in the wilderness, which I think shows us that the Christian in many times in experiencing a season of, of victory and spiritual growth, it can oftentimes be followed immediately with a season of temptation and struggle and sorrow and pain. That through the waters of baptism, the Christian then finds himself or herself in the wilderness of temptation, just like Jesus. Now, the point is even made clear when you look at this, this narrative in Matthew 4 in light of all of Scripture. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably see some similarity between this narrative and the, the wandering of the people of God, Israel, in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses is speaking to Israel, and he says this, You shall remember the whole way that it is the Lord your God. The Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments. It was God who led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years to test them, and it is God who led Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days for a time of testing as well. But the question is still probably asked in our minds is why, why is this a pattern for life? Why does God allow and see the necessity of a season of temptation for Jesus or for the Christian or for all of us? Why is this necessary? And, and while that, that question is a little bit beyond the scope of this sermon, we can at least say this, that I, I believe that God has what I would, I would refer to as a converse relationship to evil. And what I mean by that is a simpler word would just be an opposite relationship. And, and what that means is that God allows and permits evil into our life only to the degree that it accomplishes the exact opposite of what the devil intended. 
The fact that God has a converse or or asymmetrical relationship to evil means that if he were to allow evil into our lives, he only allows it to the degree that it accomplishes the exact opposite of what the devil intended. We see this in in, in the, the narrative in Matthew 4. Jesus is brought into the wilderness, and the devil's aim is to tempt him to draw him away from the mission that he was sent for. And Jesus leaves the wilderness with a greater sense of resolve and conviction about who he is and what he was sent to do. And we have to understand that this is also the ways in which we see the enemy in his relationship towards us, tempting us, leading us astray, but it is only allowed by the sovereign Lord to the degree that it accomplishes the exact opposite of what our enemy intends. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, in teaching my daughters to swim, which is a, just a daunting task, uh, I, I, there's that moment where I'm in the water, and she, my oldest daughter, Lula, is standing on the edge, and she, I'm convincing her to jump in the water, okay? Which, like, hostage negotiators should be trained to, like, teach children to swim. They would be very good at their jobs if they did this. And so you're standing here, like, just jump, jump. And she's terrified, obviously. And I know that in order for her to enjoy the pool, she has to jump in. She has to conquer that fear. And she jumps in, and what do I do? I let her go underwater, right? And to her, that's cruel. But I only let her go under to the degree that it helps her learn to swim. In her perspective, that's cruel. But I know that unless she experiences this momentary affliction, she will not enjoy the gift of swimming. Now, connecting this to the temptation here, if Satan enters the wilderness... Jesus enters the wilderness and is confronted with Satan and he is tempted to believe something different about who he is. The devil wants Jesus to see that although he is the son of God, he's not the son of God that he thinks he is. And what ends up happening, as I said, Jesus leaves the wilderness, spoiler alert, with a greater sense of conviction about who he is. So now let's look at these temptations. There are three temptations. And the first, what we're going to see actually in all three of these is that Jesus is essentially kind of asked a question. And this first question that he's essentially asked is this, are you the son you deserve to be? Are you the son you deserve to be? In verse three, we read, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, one thing we need to understand is that Satan's aim is not to try to get Jesus to worship him. Although he kind of does that later in the third temptation, his aim is simply to get Jesus to doubt what it means to be the Son of God. And he's not even getting Jesus to doubt that he is the Son of God. Satan knows that, and he knows that Jesus knows that. But what he is trying to do is manipulate and distort Jesus' understanding of what it means to be the Son of God. Now, if you notice, the, the temptation is very subtle. You know, he doesn't come in and say, worship me, or you're not the son you deserve to be. He doesn't say that emphatically. He just says, turn these stones into bread. That's a good thing. You're the son of God, right? Don't you deserve to eat? You don't deserve to go hungry. You're the son of God. The devil is tempting him with something that seems good. But what we have to see is that the temptation is not about hunger. It is not about turning stones into bread. It is about trying to manipulate the role that Jesus has as the Son of God. And the devil is doing this in this very subtle yet cunning way. And and this is very true of how he works, that his aim is to not simply make us worship him, but to give us just a little bit of a thought that leads us down a path that gets us away from worshiping the Lord. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis has in mind in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, it's a phenomenal book. 
It's, it's essentially this discourse between um, uh, the sergeant demon uh, advising a younger demon, his nephew, Wormwood. So Screwtape is writing to Wormwood about how to tempt his, his patient, his human patient. And Screwtape writes these words of advice. The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, referring to God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Again, the temptation that Satan is employing here is not to satisfy hunger, but to get Jesus to abuse his role as son to get him off the path that God has placed him on which leads to the mission that he was sent for. But it is wrapped in this attractive packaging of, you deserve to eat bread. You're the son of God. Make these stones bread. And how does Jesus respond? No thanks, I'm on a low-carb diet. No, that's not, that's not his response. He says, no, no, no. He responds boldly by declaring scripture back to the devil. In verse four, but Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy 8 in verse 3. And in that passage, Moses is speaking to Israel and reminding them of God's faithfulness in bringing manna, which was bread from heaven, bringing it down to provide for them while they were in the wilderness. And what, what Moses says is that this manna was given not just to provide but to help Israel learn the lesson to trust that God will provide as needed. You do not need to take things into your own hands. Now, one thing that I think is so helpful here for us to, to see is that Jesus, in this moment of temptation, what does he do? He quotes scripture. And, 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 and just a, a simple application here for us is that if, if Jesus needed to store God's word in his heart, to be victorious over temptation, what makes us think that we can manage without it? This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. This is how Jesus responds and is victorious over this first temptation. So then this leads us to the second. And so Satan tries a new tactic and he gets Jesus to essentially ask this question, is God the father he claims to be? Is God actually the father that he claims to be? And so Satan takes a play right out of Jesus' playbook and quotes scripture to Jesus. He references from uh, Psalm 91. And what Satan is suggesting here is that Jesus throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple and entrust himself to God to protect and provide for him. Now what Satan is trying to do is basically get Jesus to reverse the relationship that he is in with the father. And he uses the same line that Jesus uses. It is written. You know, he's using the same tactics. But what is going on in this temptation? Satan is trying to make Jesus abuse and distort his role as son. And Jesus objects to this, not because he doubts the promise of Scripture that Satan is referencing, but because he sees the faulty logic in, in, the, in the reference of this passage. Satan is trying to take a passage out of context and abuse it to make his point. Because if Jesus were to submit to this temptation, he would find himself abusing his role as son, reversing the relationship. Rather than being the son who is sent to do the will of the father, Jesus would then be the son demanding that the father provide for him and do these things. 
And this is not the relationship that was set forth for the son. Now, one thing I think this shows us is that that Satan will employ methods that appear to be good and even appear to align with our values and convictions. I mean, he uses the Bible to tempt Jesus. That's a good thing. He's quoting scripture. And this is such a very popular tactic of our enemy to use something that we think is aligned with our values, but behind it, there is something very cruel, very deadly. It's like spraying Febreze on a dead carcass. You, you might be able to cover up the stench, but it doesn't change the fact that you have a dead wildebeest you know, in your living room. You know? That's, it's still dead. And, and this is actually something um, Thomas Brooks, he has this phenomenal book, he's an old Puritan, has this old book called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he describes exactly what Satan is doing in this temptation narrative. And in this book, he says this. He says, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup, but hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Jesus doesn't take the bait, though. He sees right through it. Instead, he responds with Scripture again, correcting Satan's poor use of Scripture. Verse 7 says, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refuses to doubt that God is the Father who he claims to be, that he is no different than who he has claimed to be. And I, and I think just one other helpful lesson to, to draw from this exchange is that it is so easy for us to, to use God's word, to manipulate it, distort it, to pick and choose, to take things out of context, to fit our agendas, to make it say what we want it to say, to take God's word and have it conform to our lives rather than our lives being conformed to it. This is exactly what the devil is doing. And what we find is that when we take passages out of context to fit our agenda, that's not just a bad Bible study method, that's a devilish Bible study method. And Jesus responds by saying, I have no reason to test God, for I know that I am his beloved son. So after two temptations, the score is Jesus two, Satan zero. And we come to this third temptation, where Jesus is essentially asked this question, is the cross the only way? Is the cross the only way? Now, Satan kind of reveals his his hand here. He shows what he's really up to. And he is enticing Jesus to accomplish God's plan through a different path. He is suggesting that Jesus can do what he was supposed to do without having to go to the cross. This is what Satan is ultimately up to. Like I said, he's not trying to get him to doubt his sonship. He's trying to get Jesus to think about himself in a different light so that he can go down a different path than the one that God the Father has set for him. In verses 8 and 9, we see this final tactic. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What Satan is proposing is a crossless solution to the problems of the world. He is proposing a crossless solution to the problems of the world. And it might work if the problems of the world were rooted in bad leadership. If, if that was our ultimate problem, we, ju- we, just, we just need better leaders, which some of us think that's what our ultimate problem is. We just need a better leader. 
for four years, then eight years, and then we need a better leader after that, you know, and that's how we think. But here's the problem. This solution will not work because the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. That's the problem. And so this crossless solution will not succeed because it is not addressing the fundamental ailment that plagues all of humanity. And we all have these crossless solutions. Conservatives have this mindset that, you know, the problems of the world would be remedied if we just had stronger, stricter sexual ethics and, and better family values, you know, and then liberals over here would say, no, what we need is better social reform and, and better education. Then we would find ourselves progressing as a society. And those aren't bad ideas. Those are good things. The problem with them is not found in their remedy, but in their diluted diagnosis of what actually is the problem with humanity. And because of that, that remedy will not solve the problems of humanity because they are not addressing the ultimate problems. And so we need to see that what Satan is doing is getting Jesus to believe that he can accomplish God's mission without going to the cross. Just be the king. You will rule and everything will be fine. But ultimately, bad leadership is not our problem. Essentially what Satan is trying to do here, he's trying to convince Jesus that he can wear the crown without wearing the cross. That's, that's essentially what he is doing here. Jesus, you can be king, you can rule, and the world will be yours, but you don't need to go to the cross. One thing that Satan did get right here, though, is that if, if Jesus were to yield to this temptation and to avoid going to the cross, Jesus would find himself essentially worshiping Satan. And I say that not to be shocking. When you consider what Satan is proposing, pursue this path that doesn't lead to the cross, it would lead to Jesus worshiping Satan because if you think about it, if you remember in Matthew 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And what does Peter do? Peter stands up there and says, my Lord, this shall never be. I will not let this happen. And what does Jesus say? Thanks, buddy, for having my back. I really appreciate that. No, he calls him Satan. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You do not have the mind of God. You have the mind of man. Because what Peter is suggesting is that Jesus not die. And that would not lead Jesus to the cross. It would result in no cross. And because of that, it would lead to not only the ultimate death of Jesus, but to the ultimate death of all of creation. That's why Jesus responds to the devil in this final temptation, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. This is where Jesus is very bold and declarative, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus responds to this final temptation by clearly pledging his allegiance to God the Father and to his plan to go to the cross. Jesus knew that there is but one God, and to worship any other God would result in personal destruction. But Jesus also knew that the cross was the only way to salvation, and to avoid that would lead to the destruction of all things. This is not just a temptation for Jesus to kind of sin and fall away. The devil is planning to ruin all of creation by keeping Jesus from going to the cross. But Jesus does not bend. He does not give in. Through all the temptations, 
He refuses to be the kind of son Satan wants him to be. He doesn't seek to serve himself. Instead, he remains faithful to the Father. He doesn't demand that the Father give to him, but he is obedient to the Father. And he submits to the idea that he cannot wear the crown without wearing the cross. In Matthew 4, what we come to see is that Jesus, when you, when you see this story in light of all of Scripture, that Jesus is the true and better Israel. That he was faithful in the wilderness when Israel was not. Where Israel demanded that God provide for them, Jesus trusted in God's provision and did not take matters into his own hands. Where, where Israel argued with God and demanded and tested him in the wilderness, Jesus obeyed the Father and entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And where Israel readily and consistently, time and time again, bowed down to other gods, Jesus in the wilderness remained faithful and pledged his allegiance to God the Father alone. This temptation story shows us it shows us many things, but it shows us the kind of son that Jesus is. One who does not use his power for his own gain. One who does not test God the Father, who doesn't take shortcuts, who doesn't deviate from the plan that he was set on, but he remains faithful. And he stays on the path that leads to the cross. This, this story is actually a beautiful example of what the Apostle Paul, I think, meant in Philippians 2. When he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not abuse or distort or manipulate or hoard his role as the son. He used it for the purposes that God intended. So as we bring all this to a close, I want us just to see three things about Jesus the son. That in this temptation narrative, we see Jesus as the son of God who is accomplishing salvation for us. That, that Christ's victory in the wilderness is not just proof that he is the Son of God. It is a story of the Son of God working to secure our salvation. That he is actually carrying out God's plan of bringing salvation to the world. And he's doing that in these temptations, showing that he is the true, sinless, spotless lamb of sacrifice who was sent to be the payment for the sins of the world. Jesus' victory over the devil's temptations showed his power over evil, yes, but more than that, it demonstrates that he is the one, the only one, who is sufficient to take away the sins of the world. If Jesus would have left the wilderness in failure, if he would have yielded to these temptations, it, the cross would not just be the death of Jesus, it would be the death of all things. But thanks be to God that he did leave the wilderness in victory that he showed himself to be the greater Israel, the greater, more faithful son who did not yield to temptation. Jesus is the son of God who secures our salvation. When we read this story, we need to see our savior securing our salvation even now in this moment, in his life, death, and resurrection. Secondly, Jesus is the son of God who also sympathizes with us. He is the son of God who sympathizes with us. He did not enter our world to just watch and observe humanity, but he came to experience humanity, to understand and identify with broken humanity. What that means is that Jesus knows what you have gone through, what you are going through, and what we all have yet to go through, because he has endured and experienced the spectrum of human emotion. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, accused, to be abandoned and rejected. 
He knows what it feels like to have fear and sorrow and grief and anxiety. He knows these things because he became these things. And, and when we understand this, we, we know that we have a Savior who understands and identifies with us. And sometimes, if, if you've been in a time of grief and sorrow and pain, you know that sometimes the most comforting thing to hear in those moments is someone coming up to you and just saying, me too. Me too. I totally get it. And what we see in this temptation narrative is that Jesus is the Son of God who sympathizes with us, which is what inspired the author of Hebrews to pen these words in Hebrews 2. Therefore he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is the Son of God who sympathizes with us. And lastly, Jesus is the Son of God who shares his name with us. He's the Son of God who shares his name with us. And what I mean by that is that Jesus came as the Son of God to make us, to make him our brother. That's what that means. He came to make us sons and daughters of God. Yes, he came to defeat sin and to show his power over evil in this temptation narrative. But in his life and death, Jesus shows that because he didn't give in, we are invited in. That's what this story is about. Because Jesus didn't give in to temptation, we are invited into the family of God. But we have to understand this, that for the Christian, the Christian is still tempted by the same tactics that the devil used with Jesus in the wilderness. That the devil is still trying to tempt us to believe that Jesus is a different kind of son. And as a result, that we are different kinds of sons and daughters. He wants us to not only doubt that Jesus is the true son, but he also wants to doubt our sonship, our daughtership, our relationship to the father. We may think we're sons and daughters adopted in the family of God, but Satan wants us to believe that our right standing and relationship with him has to be held up by our end of the bargain. That, yeah, yeah, you're adopted, you're family, but you need to make sure you're upholding your side of the deal. And, and Satan knows that when we live in that way of thinking, that I obey, therefore I'm loved, he has us exactly where he wants us. To believe that we don't have a father-son, father-daughter relationship with God, but this contractual relationship of I do this, therefore I receive this, and now we're even. We have been adopted into God's family, but we are tempted to believe that it is on a condition of how good and obedient and faithful we are. Tim Keller, in, in, in responding to this and speaking to this very issue, he says, the one thing Satan does not want is that God's words, you are my beloved child, he does not want those words to become the fuel of your life and heart. He does not want us to understand unconditionally that we, through Christ, are now brought in as sons and daughters, and that this temptation narrative is a means by which Jesus is doing that. Research shows time and time again that one of the most contributing factors, the most influential factors in, in a young girl's life and in, in having a, a, a healthy self-image is how she is appreciated and loved by her father. Research shows that over and over again. In the same way, what we need to find rest and peace and joy in life is not, is not through avoiding a laundry list of sins and through keeping a laundry list of good deeds, but it is knowing that through Christ Jesus, we have the blessing 
of hearing from the Father say to us, this is my dearly beloved child in whom I am well pleased. This is what the temptation narrative is about. Jesus securing and accomplishing the work of blessing us with the opportunity of being sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a loving father. And Lord, we, we, we recognize that there are times in life where we feel uh, the weight of sin and temptation and struggle and pain, and we look at it and we say we don't understand. But Lord, we ask that you would grant us the, the faith to trust that in your infinite wisdom, you know what is best for us, that in your infinite love, you desire what's best for us, and in your infinite power, you are capable of accomplishing what's best for us. And so, Lord, would we entrust our lives to you with that knowledge? And may we see in this story that Jesus is not just victorious over sin and temptation, but he is accomplishing our salvation. He is our son of God who sympathizes with us and who has come to allow us the opportunity to share his name, to call him brother and to call you father. May we respond to you now in worship and praise in light of this truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.